This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Despite tens of thousands of your requests to add the Blaze to your lineup, Comcast continues to ignore you. Now, they want to buy Time Warner Cable. If that happens, there will be less choice and higher cable bills. Take action now. Visit gettheblaze.com. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. I am Will Kane. I'm S.E. Cup. Excited to hang out with you on another Saturday morning. It is 9.06 on the clock, and we've got, got a, I think we have a debatable show today. Many issues that SC and I might be disagreeing What's a debatable on. show? Like the I think you can read that. The show to, is real. That no, exists. No, it's double entendre, right? Doesn't that work? A the show is not debatable. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I started out this morning debating before I even got here. What do you mean? With well, kids? With your kids? No, it's technically still summertime, although it's 70s here in New York. Temperatures in the 70s. I'm like, I'm putting on shorts. I'm going to put on shorts. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm putting on shorts. Forget her. I don't care what she says. I'm her on being shorts. me. Yeah, you. And I'm like, no. And the one comment you made, like literally extended the length of my leg wear, was it's work. You know? You're showing up to work in shorts. That's my voice? <laughs> yeah. Is that you doing me? Amazing. Be. I got to work on it a little Uncanny. Bit. Uh, so I put on jeans and I'm like, well, dang it. I've. I really, I'm gonna put on tennis shoes. I want to wear tennis shoes. That's what I want to wear. And then I put on some white tennis shoes with my jeans. I'm like, I look like Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> I'm too close to 40 to dress this way because it looks like you know I'm dressing like I'm 40. Right. <laughs> so my outfit, uh, which a man should never call what he wears an outfit, <laughs> shifted like three times. So wow. Now I put on boots, jeans. And a shirt, and I'm very comfortable. You but, look respectable. Eh. You look your age. You look respectable. You look appropriate for doing a Saturday morning radio show. And I'm not looking at your calves, <laughs> which is a win-win. You want to see him? I don't. I, I, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't know whether to lift my jeans up or drop them down to show you. There's only one right answer to that, and it's lift them up. <laughs> it's 100% lift them up. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, by the way, I mean, honestly, one of the reasons I wanted to put on shorts, summer is going so fast. Like, it's gone. Oh, and shorts is your way of holding on? That's right. Uh-huh. Poof, it's gone. My kid's back in school. It's in the 70s. It's like you, there's people uh, yeah. advertising pumpkin spice lattes and chai, chai tea, and it's like, it's not fall. It's not fall. Right. But here's what I do when summer's ending. I tell myself, but the good news is hunting season. I love fall. Right. I do love fall. But, but you don't want to rush through summer to get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Summer's special. Summer's special. Even summer in the city? Well, it's just a time where you think we're, you're, even if you're not on vacation, you're, your mind's a little bit on vacation. I don't need to do that. Everybody else is on vacation right now. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because August in our business, our business both being media and politics, is usually a very slow month. It's when everyone takes off, and Washington obviously Congress is out on recess for three weeks. Um, there are entire industries in Washington that go on vacation with them. And in the media is when, you know, this is when a lot of us go away. The president's gone away. And this has been the busiest August I can remember in a really long time for us. Yeah. And it's uh, it's produced a debatable show for us this morning. No, stop saying that. The show is not (laughs) debatable. It exists. We're going to have a debate on birth control. (laughs) The quality of the ice bucket challenge, the worthiness of the ice bucket challenge, 
um, the relevance of various pieces of evidence in Ferguson, Missouri, whether or not I have a right to decide where and when I go swimming. Okay, that's putting it mildly, but we'll get there. And also why Will Kane maybe looks like his late dog. What dog would you resemble? Mm. First, though, let's talk about whether or not the United States should negotiate with terrorists. You suggest we're about to see a shift in what you would call a foreign policy guideline, what I would call a slogan. The floor is yours. Go. Oh, well, I, I think in in watching a lot of the coverage of, of ISIS and, um, you know, you've acknowledged the, the tone shift from the administration on ISIS. We have gone from calling this, not we, but the president has gone from calling ISIS Al-Qaeda's JV team to, you know, a significant threat that might warrant airstrikes and nothing's off the table. And um, and that was practically overnight with the beheading of journalist James Foley. I, in predicting ahead, forecasting ahead on where I think this story will go, because that's that's what I do. Um, see the future? I am, you see the future? Well, no, but we, I mean, this is what we do in this business, you know, this is good, actually, to, to sort of explain. <laughs> I, you know, you write, you write a newspaper column, right? Yeah. I write it on Monday for Wednesday. I've got to figure out what the story is going to be in a couple days. And that's a really short lead time. Sometimes I write a magazine article three months in advance. So in this business, the whole point is to predict what's coming down. What's the next click in this story? And I predict that the next click in the ISIS James Foley story is going to be from the left suggesting we need to revisit our policy of not negotiating with terrorists. Here's why I come by this. We saw this already start to percolate when President Obama exchanged deserter Bo Bergdahl for five Al-Qaeda terrorists out of Gitmo. To defend that, because the left has to defend what the president does, and the media joined in, you saw a chorus of people say, well, yeah, the United States does already negotiate with terrorists, and here's why we did this. All is right with the world. This was totally fine. Nothing to see here. And sort of rewrite our policy um, in real time just to defend this moment. I think in the wake of the beheading of James Foley, with the knowledge that other European countries are already paying ransoms for these captured prisoners, whether they're members of the media or just civilians, sometimes soldiers, I think the left's next click on this will be to suggest we must start negotiating with terrorists and consider paying these ransoms to bring our soldiers home, especially with the news. I mean, we saw it. We started criticizing the president and the White House for knowing that ISIS was threatening to kill these captors. And so then the, the White House comes out and says, oh, well, you should know. You should know. Don't get too mad at us. You should know. We tried to save him. Well, It failed, but we tried to save him. Well, look, if that's what the left does, good for the left. That's a conversation that needs to be had. It's a worthy conversation. It's one that should be revisited. Now, um, let's def- but let's define what you mean by that. Because when we say negotiate with terrorists, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. Let's 
tell me what part of this you would be willing to reconsider. Well, I think that's an interesting why. question you bring up. So first of all, I think the most nuanced thing you're introducing is um, what are we talking about when we say terrorists? Because And negotiate. Not all terrorists are the same, actually. Yeah. Um, I read a fascinating article on foreign policy suggesting that negotiating with terrorists is vastly different when you're talking about a nihilistic um, death cult that really has nothing to lose um, nor minimal to gain in a negotiation. It's like going to the card table with a guy that's playing completely with house and money. He's going to disrupt the odds at the table, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas um, if you're negotiating with somebody who we qualified as terrorists like the IRA, Irish Republican Army, or ETF in Spain. They have traditional Western concepts of political motives, meaning Uh to establish a separatist state or whatever it may be. And with a goal in mind like that, you can at least set the terms of a bid negotiation, which is distinctly different Mm -hmm. than an Al-Qaeda-type terrorist. That being said... yeah. Um, Wait, I, can we stick? Can we just? Can we just? Can we address? Yeah, but that I wouldn't. Dis- but, but I'm just going to say I w- I'm not going to accept that distinction in this debate because I think we should consider the negotiations with both, and I will tell you why. Well, I I think that's a I think that's an important distinction. Um, I would I would rather negotiate with neither, but I think it I think there it's a convincing distinction to suggest that maybe the PLO which was part of a negotiation, the Oslo Accords, um, IRA, which Britain did negotiate with, um, <clears throat> and other, maybe maybe you'd put Hamas in that category. Uh, groups with a political, with a political agenda, in addition to a nihilistic agenda, let's not, let's not cloud things. Hamas also wants the death of a lot of Jews in addition to some political demands. But if there are political demands to be met, maybe that's a different conversation. Uh, and I don't know that Al-Qaeda— Political demands that we can understand. Because you can't say Al-Qaeda right. doesn't necessarily have political goals. It's just political goals that share some thread of Western value and recognition. Right. Right. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. I'm going to lay out for you—I uh, have three reasons that this is a worthy conversation to have and a worthy concept to revisit. Because I think— the idea that we don't negotiate with terrorists is largely a slogan and not a policy. But I also want to open it up to the audience. It's both, and it's a good one. But let's let's we'll have the debate, and let's open it up. Show. <laughs> let's, let's open it up to the audience at eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. I'm sure you largely disagree with me. I could be wrong. Maybe maybe you think this is also something we should uh, we should revisit. But give us a call. Join the debate eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. Let's do it when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Never again will I allow our political self-interest to deter us from doing what we know to be morally right. Atrocity and terror are not political weapons. And to those who would use them, your day is over. We will never negotiate. We will no longer tolerate and we will no longer be afraid. It was President Jim Marshall, one of the greatest presidents 
ever to run the United States, you might know him as Harrison Ford from Air Force One. We will no longer be afraid. It's your turn to be afraid. That's pretty good. You also do an uncanny Liam Neeson. Do that for everyone. I do? Yeah, you do. I have no idea what you're speaking of. I'm taken. I have a very special set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a lifetime. Skills that make me very dangerous to people like you. (laughs) It's really good. It's really good. I mean, obviously this is not a joking matter, but... Uh, what we're what we're talking about right now is is whether or not we should revisit our policy of not negotiating with terrorists. It's a longstanding policy. You say it's also a slogan, um, but I believe that that will be the next debate. I don't I don't mind the debate. I I already know the answer to it. But go ahead and tell me and tell me well, what what you think. I'm going to deprive you of your and. You think it's a policy initiative, a policy guideline, and a slogan. I think it's simply uh, at least most of the time a slogan. It's not a policy, not one that we live by, not one that many other countries live by. And that kind of becomes the point. I, I, I want to be hyper-rational in this. By the way, I like the slogan. Like, I understand it, right? If you negotiate with terrorists, then it's, in some sense you legitimize them. and in a Not in some sense. And more importantly, you encourage them. That's the argument as it goes. The yes. problem is um, nobody lives up to it. So I, I would submit to you point number one is this. The fact that other Western countries do negotiate with ISIS and al-Qaeda undercuts the very principle the United States pretends to uphold. So, for example, and it's hard to escape, although trivial, accurate analogies like gambling. If you are all suggesting one premise, we don't negotiate with terrorists, but three of your teammates actually are negotiating with terrorists, and we know that France and the UK have given over something like $125 million to ISIS, France has readily given money over. They're undercutting your premise. So not only now does your principle not work, your people become the chum. So ISIS can execute an American, James Foley, and sell a Frenchman. And they have. They've sold Frenchmen back to France. um, And successfully, France has negotiated their guys out of it. The point is this. It puts the United States in the worst position possible. We don't negotiate, so you can kill our guys and threaten France with the death of Americans and get money from the Western European countries. If we're not all together, it's a worthless premise. I I totally agree. I don't know why then you wouldn't say, so everyone should do what we do instead of us doing what they do. You're absolutely right. Fairness is only a useful guiding tool if everyone abides by it. If we're fair and no one else is, well, then it, it doesn't it doesn't. I'm work. just I'm just being a realist. No, so you're, so you're, you're asking me why? No, I'm, right. you, you ask why I'm not saying they should change their position. Right. I'm saying I'm just being a realist. This is how the world exists. They're doing this, and as long as so we should do. So so our guys will get killed. I mean, if well, you think well, no, but if we if we set if we set these lessons. By the way, this is a 100 percent repeat of the Barbary Wars. Oh God! And here we I'm go. not going to go back. <laughs> I'm not going to go back and give this history lesson again. Everyone listening should go ahead and read up on the Barbary Wars. But we were in this exact same position with our European allies paying the tributes when we decided not to. Okay. And you know what? They learned from our strength. They learned from our strength and they stopped paying the ransom. And so for a very good period of time, the Barbary terrorists died. They died out. It completely died out because no one 
was willing to do it. But it took us to set that tone. Okay. Why do you think we're incapable of doing that now? Okay, perfect question. Brings me to point number two. Because we do negotiate with terrorists. You want to go to France and tell them, we don't negotiate with terrorists. You've got to stop because you're getting our guys killed. France's response is, what are you talking about? You oh, negotiate oh, with terrorists. Don't do accents. I'm getting better. That was pretty good. Don't do accents. We negotiate with terrorists. Ronald Reagan did it. Iran Contra was a negotiating with terrorist crisis, uh, conflict, yeah. controversy. That's what it was about. Negotiating with terrorists. We have done it recently, as you point out, with Bo Bergdahl. It, we can't pretend to have a principle. You either have it or you don't, and and you can't convince everyone else to have it when you don't. Okay, can we I? Don't, can we don't. We negotiate with terrorists. Let's let's address that. <clears throat> you're you're not wrong, but I think that's why I set out in the beginning to define what what we're talking about, because I think there's a big difference between sitting down with um, some very bad actors, either a, a country or um, a terrorist organization, and talking about some some common goals or maybe a prisoner swap. And um, paying $120 million for a hostage. That is different. And I think while you're right that we have engaged on some negotiations in the past, as have other countries, the idea, and what I'm talking about, the idea— But you're, you're not rebutting the concept of negotiation. You're rebutting the terms. No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that we have, right. in the past, negotiated with terrorists. We just did it. We just did it. Right. That that's a problem for me. I'm yeah. not saying that 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 um that should mean that we should always do it. But the pro- there's there's a a difference and I don't think even you would suggest we should start paying ransoms for hostages. No, but you, you know, but and and, effect, and, and that's effectively why I'm set saying, a bounty on the head of every American overseas. Right. And so that's why I say you're not now debating the concept of whether or not we should negotiate with terrorists. You're debating how far we should go, what kind of terms we should be willing to listen to. And what but I'm I've, saying, I've I'm said not I saying, don't want to do any of it. But if we're ta- if we're going to talk about it, then I think some things should be 100% off the table, while other things might be so to speak, negotiable. Okay, so I wouldn't do any submitted, of it. but that's that's fine. Uh, I, I think there is a qualitative difference between paying bounties on the heads of Americans and whatever else you, you want to find acceptable, prisoner swaps, whatever it may Arms. be. Which, by the way, brings me to my point number three, which is people with a great amount of experience, nations with more experience this than, Amer- than America, quite frankly, mm-hmm. Israel, readily adopts this policy. Yep. Trade a thousand Palestinian prisoners for one Israeli soldier. Right. The point isn't whether or not it's right or wrong. It's just what's done. It's what's done. And all on, the argument I'm making to you is the idea that we don't negotiate with terrorists and we commit a cardinal sin when we even consider it is just a feel-good slogan. If we all lived up to it and we executed that slogan as though it were a principle, that would be a different debate. And we could argue the worthiness of that. What I'm suggesting to you is it's not. And so, therefore, it's just a slogan. You know, uh, lots of things were, were done. Slavery was just done. It's just what was done. And if there's going to be this market that exists, why not benefit and participate in it? Uh, I, I don't think that's a compelling argument, that it's just what's done and you're being a realist. And and I'm not disagreeing with you. Everything you've said is factually true. This is what happens. We've done this before. Other countries have done it. It's not an even playing field, so we've got to play dirty too. I fundamentally disagree that that is a reason for us to reconsider a longstanding policy. And in fact, we should be sticking to our principles more now than ever. 
and teaching the rest of the world, including our Democratic ally friends, why what they're doing is funding terrorism, creating worse problems for themselves in the future, putting bounties on the heads of every other Western citizen in the world. They're responsible. They are part of the problem. All right, we'll do a little more of this on Cane and Cup when we come back. This is Cane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. Welcome back. Should the United States negotiate with terrorists? Actually, I don't even think that's the question. I don't think that's loaded because the United States does negotiate with terrorists. Um, is that a wise policy? I actually think that's actually a loaded question as well because I think it's nothing more than a slogan. Why are you asking all these questions that you hmm? disagree with the premise of? Hmm? This is your, you, you, it's your, it's your show. You can ask whatever questions you find <laughs> are correct. It's called a passive-aggressive argument. Jim in Minnesota, <laughs> should the United States negotiate with terrorists? No, we should not. Because, like I said, you know, just like you were saying about the Barbary Wars, you know, we didn't learn Hey-o. on that one. Hello? <laughs> yes, thank you for bringing that up. I feel like most people don't know this history of the Barbary Wars, and I'm constantly made fun of for bringing it up. But please continue. Yes, because, like I said, you know, I've studied that period. On- no, hello? Oh, did we lose Jim? Wow. Oh, Jim dropped out. Maybe he'll call back. That's too bad because I think Why? he's in the process of agreeing with you. That is too bad. Um, look, I, you know, I bring up the Barbary Wars a lot because I'm fascinated with it, but it, it's also so relevant for these conversations. It was relevant around the Somali uh, pirate terrorism incident, which, by the way, still happened. Um, it was relevant after 9-11. It's relevant now. It's relevant in all these conversations, and it's like we have forgotten our history. We have forgotten that we learned these lessons 200 years ago. We learned them hard, but we learned them well. We had to learn them twice, in fact. There were two sets of Barbary Wars. The first in eighteen early 1800s, 1802, and then the second after 1812. We had just fought an American Revolution. We were tired. We were war-weary. We didn't have a navy. We had no money. And yet we still summoned the will and the courage to fight terrorism overseas once and for all. And of course, it wasn't once and for all, but that was the plan to say, okay, no more paying ransom, no more paying tribute. We've lost a million Christian Christians to these Barbary terrorists because we keep paying them off. We are 200 years later in the same place yeah. considering paying off these terrorists. I know, I know. I, it's just your your two hundred year old analogy fails for me when I, I, the the analogy, and I haven't yet to nail down the perfect one, is something like I don't know a bunch of uh, a bunch of kids in a schoolyard suggesting they're going to stand up to the bully, knowing full well that they have to be in solidarity to get anything accomplished. Mm-hmm. And as they go up and suggest to the bully, "We're all going to attack you if you don't quit pushing us around." Mm-hmm. One of the kids, and they realize they all have to be on this together. If anybody fails, then the whole team goes down. Yep. One of the kids in the whole threatening line keeps winking at the bully. Yeah. Letting him know. Okay. Not really. I'm not in on this. I, Thus, I... the whole team falls apart. Sooner or later, it becomes every man for himself. And you can talk about a utopic vision where we should not negotiate with terrorists. I'm just saying. 
to some extent, it's a question that's that's uh, that's that's moot because no, but you're not. They do. Everybody does. You're not finishing that analogy because your 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 analogy is right. I'm stipulating that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. So what's your suggestion that no one stands up to the bully? Now you just start every man for himself at some point. No, I'll stand up to the bully. You just do it on your own terms. Sometimes, sometimes that requires negotiating. Sometimes it requires fighting. But, Will, that's exactly what the United States is doing. We're doing it on our own terms. We don't care that France or other countries will negotiate or will pay these ransoms. The, the, in principle, anyway, we're suggesting we're going to do it on our own. We don't need to coalesce with you. We don't need a coalition of people to stand up against the bully because you might be winking at him while we're trying to stand. We know that you're not going to fight fair. We are. Listen, you know, I, some, somebody tweeted me a moment ago that this is some kind of uh, even even possibly constitutional principle. But the point is, you guys in, in, in USC and, and the people are pushing back on me, you're attempting to portray this as a principle. And what I'm telling you is, it's not a principle if no one upholds it. And I'm not just talking about everyone else in the world. I'm talking about yourself. We negotiate with terrorists. We do it. Now, you can keep asking the question of should, but the point is, until that this is something that is that is given fidelity, it's worthless. No, and it's we, a slogan. We do. Uh, but, but I'm not disagreeing. I know we do. In, in S.E. Cup's world, if S.E. Cup were ruling the world or at least this country— we wouldn't ever negotiate. So I'm. But I'm you, earlier you submitted to me that you possibly would consider negotiating under some circumstances if it was somebody like the IRA or well, the ETF. No, what I'm what I'm acknowledging is that there is a scale. There are degrees of negotiation. I'm not comfortable with most of them, but and certain ones would be 100% off limits to me. But if I have to live in this real world, I think you broke world, the seal on the principle. No, I think if I have to live in this nah, real world hairs, that dude. you're that you're creating for me. That I have to, I have to at least consider or be open to some of these other negotiating tactics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're asking Al Qaeda to distinguish as well. So when you tell them we're not negotiating, and they look and go, "Well, you did with them." So the point is, are you treating Al Qaeda like a rational actor? I'm trying to be strategic. That's my point. In the end, this is strategic. The, the point of not negotiating with terrorists is to stop encouraging them from doing the things they are attempting to negotiate over. Right. And what I'm telling you is, if you go and negotiate with the IRA, but not with Al Qaeda, do you think they're capable of making that distinction? No, but but you're not. You've already broken the principle, but and thus not, encouraged the behavior. No, but you're not. You're not giving any solutions. You're just saying this is the world we live in. Here's what happens. Here's what exists. I'm saying this. The solution is you take every one of these instances um, pragmatically, the way that we do. Can we negotiate with the IRA? Yes. Can we get what we want out of them? Yes. Al-Qaeda in this situation. Can we get something out of them? Can we get our prisoner back? Negotiate on its own terms. Don't hold, Don't pretend to have a principle that you don't consistently apply. We got Jim back. Let's see oh, good. You, you, you need reinforcements. I feel pretty good about my argument, but go ahead, Jim. Tell me, tell me why Will's wrong. Well, like I said, as far as, you know, I'm an avid student of history, and one of my, uh, almost did a minor in it as far as when I was in college. Like, I basically have a photographic memory when it comes to it. And I studied the Barbary Wars, and like you say, uh, Jefferson learned the hard way that, uh, you know, you, you tried to appease uh, the terrorists, or the Barbary pirates at that time, and it didn't work well, and then he realized that he had to, you know, go to war to settle it. And we don't learn, they're not the religion of peace, I'm sorry. And uh, anytime we negotiate with people like this, they're gonna, it's going to bite us in the butt because they can lie and do whatever they want, connive, cheat, and, and it's okay with they accomplish their goals. You know, but see, get- here's the problem with the historical analogies. You're using incidents to create a larger principle. I'm not suggesting we should have negotiated with the Barbary pirates. You said these people in this instance. And the point is you are not 
making an argument for a principle. You're making an argument for a right course of action in a certain certain set of circumstances. Yeah, I can see that. But like I said, it's, you know, as far as the terrorists, you know, it says, you know, like the situation with the uh, bombing in New York, you know, on uh, as far as by the world at the Times Square bombing. And uh, the guy said when, you know, he basically was before the judge, he said that, uh, you know, he lied about the fact that he was going to be loyal to the United States and, you know, had no problem because, like I said, he's trying to achieve the ultimate goal of, you know, jihad. And like I said, whatever he has to do to do that, he will. See, I think what we're not doing here in this conversation, Jim, thanks for the call, is we're not distinguishing between negotiating and giving in. I'm not saying you always negotiate. I'm not saying you always become a pushover. I'm saying you you analyze strategically every situation on its own merits, and sometimes it requires busting heads. I'm not negotiating right. with this group or this guy or this particular hostage taker in this instance. Yeah, instance. but if you and have, sometimes if you're a bad you look at it there. and you go, if I don't. I don't get my desired outcome. If you're a bad actor out there and you think, okay, the United States is taking this on a case-by-case basis, let's try our luck. Which is the truth. Let's try our luck. Because we, they don't have a principle. They don't have a policy. We don't We don't know for sure that they're not going to negotiate with us. Let's try it. But I understand what you're saying. We don't. We can't have an overarching principle because it doesn't cover everything. Right. We should take it case-by-case case and there's strategy that an overarching principle would ignore. That's right. In other words, your should. I disagree. In other words, your should that you're arguing for in this is really an impossibility. And you'll I disagree. Never, and you'll never send the message that you think will pay off the benefit of your should. You want to make sure you're sending the message out to everyone. Do not do this because yeah. you will not be rewarded. Correct. You will never accomplish that message because you will break your own promise. Well, well, the you because, will do it. And the I can, because and I, have forced I, just, you I disagree this con- with. But I forced you in this conversation to break your own promise. No, you haven't. I have suggested that me, Essie Cup, me personally, would be willing to hear out certain arguments distinguishing certain kinds of negotiations. You have not forced me to break any promise. If I were running the country, we would have a no negotiation policy. IRA? No negotiations. If you're violent, if you're an extremist, if you're a terrorist, if you kidnap people, if you hold people for ransom, there will be no negotiations. 100%. I think that's a principle. Vietnam? Vietnam. The Vietnamese? What do, you, what do you mean? The North Vietnamese. Would you negotiate with them a peace treaty? State actors, it, that's a different situation. We're getting into the definition of terrorists now. Well, yes, but it's very clear. I mean, to me, it's very clear. Look, you can try to box me in a corner on this, Will, but I feel really clear in my mind. I don't think you're allowing for not just your negotiating clarity. Negotiating with terrorists is a bad idea. It's a bad idea 100% of the time, and I will not succumb to your insistence, to your insistence that we don't have the moral temerity. Why are you rolling your eyes, Jose? To 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 stand to this and to and to teach the rest of the world this is what we're going I just to think do your clarity, because this is your, the world we live your in. Your clarity's not good enough. You need clarity on the other side of the negotiating table as well. And I don't think the terrorists and their terms make all the clear distinctions that you do and therefore will not be encouraged in the way you think they will. I think they will not see the lines Let's try that you it. have. Why don't we try it? <laughs> Why don't we try it? Cuz I mean you've said you've said we've never really We've never really given this 100% shot. Why don't we try it? I don't think you can. Why don't we see what is the harm against this great experiment in foreign policy and trying it out once? Okay, quit berating me with your words. I told you this this show is going to be debatable. It's a debatable show. Why are you guys <laughs> obsessed with golf? Why would what's what's the thing with golf? 
right? Uh, I, I'm, I, that bug has not caught me. It's caught some presidents. It's caught a lot of people. Multiple presidents. Um, let but, me tell you, the, 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 the laser focus on golf from a lot of these guys, this is why women hate golf. Psychologically, what is it about golf when we come back on Kane and Cup? You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Kane and Cup returns now. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. All right. I mean, it's really <laughs> hard not to laugh. It's hard not to laugh. That's one of my favorite cherished moments of GWB. Stop um, the terrorists. That was 2002. He was talking about some suicide bombings in Israel. Not not a laughing matter. What I, I and I, you know, I'm I'm actually really sick of this conversation about whether President Obama should be golfing. I mean, of course he should not be. <laughs> it, it looks terrible. But I, I, what I'm interested in, what this reminds me of, is frankly my husband, who can so singularly focus. On golf. He's not a terrorist. He has a beard. <laughs> he does have a beard. <laughs> Stop with your stereotypes. But my husband is not alone. I mean, he can so singularly focus on golf, that and fishing, that, I mean, the world could literally be collapsing around him. The world could be on fire outside of the 18th hole, on fire, burning down, and he would be laser-focused on getting that ball into that hole. And President Bush, that was a, a perfect demonstration. Why are you laughing, Jose? Of how that you can. No whatsoever. Yeah, right. Because that had all kinds of. Can we, can we be grown-ups? Things to read into. <laughs> can we be grown-ups? <laughs> President Bush, in that moment, was a perfect, clear demonstration of what I'm talking about. Israel, suicide bombings. Now watch this drive. <laughs> Now Sounded back like to a what's solid really, hit too. Now like what's with, back on my it, mind. He had no. By the way, uh, I don't play a lot of golf. I play golf once every eighteen months. And um, one of the things I don't like about golf is like it's such a. Uh, you walk up, you're going to hit that drive right, and there's three other guys watching you and judging you every step of the way. Yeah, and you can feel their eyes on you. Yeah. And but they're drinking and eating hot dogs. President I don't Bush know how has not just is. his foursome with him, but a press gallery. Now watch this drive. And there's no hesitation. He almost does it like a hockey shot, like like a Happy Gilmore. You can hear him almost run up on it. Watch this drive. That's what I mean. He's got a press corps around him. He has just completed a sentence about a suicide bombing in Israel. There are cameras on him, and he has the focus. To hit that ball probably well and like five seconds later. Just like President Obama has this press conference on the death of James Foley and minutes later. Literally, is out on I the just saw course. in Fox News, they just had it up on the screen. I didn't realize this. He gives the press conference, I think, at 12.57. Yes. At 105. Yeah, that's what he's I just on the said. Course. Minutes later, he is on the course in his shorts playing golf. 
You know, the golf thing. Um, I don't understand you men. I don't, And it's my dad. I mean, I grew up with this. The bug has never bitten me. And it, golf, it's funny. It, it, it bites guys in a way that no other sport does. Um, the obsession of it. I don't think tennis carries this. By the way, you and I talked about this. If President Obama had left that press conference to go play a quick round of tennis, I don't. I mean, I think he'd have been judged way more harshly, even than his golf. Right? Oh, totally. Golf is normalized. It's what every guy does. It's totally acceptable. It's not that he wasn't criticized for his round of golf. He was, but can imagine some other thing he might have done? Some other sport? Sure. No. I mean, golf is part of just. I mean, in some in some jobs, it's part of like corporate culture. I mean, it's just what you do, um, and, and uh, uh, you know that that's fine. The president can relax however he wants. What but we gotta get rid of these terrorists. Now watch this dive, and he does like a triple Lundy off the top. <laughs> that would be weird. All right, that when we come back weird. on Canaan Cup, what is and is not relevant in Ferguson, Missouri. You're listening to Canaan Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane S.E. Cup R. Kane and Cup. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the second hour of Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm S.E. Cup. I want to talk this morning about what is and is not relevant in the story of Ferguson, Missouri. But the, the odd thing is, before we even have that conversation, is what is the story of Ferguson, Missouri? It's, is, is it the uh, potential criminal trial of Darren Wilson, the officer who shot Michael Brown? Is it the response? Is it the protest? Is it the police response to the protest? Is it the militarization of the police? Or I could offer you, I don't know. A dozen tangential media storylines that have very little to do with actually what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri. We're going to have to indulge the central issue, what should be the central issue of Ferguson, Missouri. What happened that day between Officer Darren Wilson and Michael Brown? Because the the activist chant is charge him, charge him. He must be charged. And with that conclusion in mind... Things that are not relevant become relevant, and things that are relevant become irrelevant. Well, we're told that they're irrelevant. That's right. They don't actually become irrelevant. We are told by an activist media, that's irrelevant, pay no mind to it. Whether or not it is in service to the conclusion of charge him, charge him. So we want to, as I, I like to do, I actually think that the legal system and the parameters of the legal system and its rules serve as a decent vehicle to pursue the truth, at least in comparison to its media counterpart. So let's go through the legal analysis of what is and is not relevant to figuring out what happened that day. And we've enjoyed the last couple of weeks having Alex Little uh, join us on the phone. Alex, um, is an, Alex, remind me, you were a prosecutor? You're not currently a prosecutor. I was. No, I was a federal prosecutor for just over six years. And you do criminal defense now? I do. All right. Uh, we've enjoyed having you the last couple of weeks, Alex. You're Thanks. You've become Appreciate our be go-to yeah. legal expert That's right. on a whole host of issues. <laughs> Let's run through a few of the, uh, the, the pieces of evidence in this, in this uh, story sure. and, and ask whether or not they're relevant to, to understanding the truth 
of what happened that day. So I want to start with the robbery tape, Alex. The uh, the the tape of Michael Brown in the quick trip uh, down the street from where he eventually encountered Darren Wilson, the officer. Now the day that was released there, and and the weeks following. A huge amount of uproar that this was a smear campaign, that this had very little to do, in fact, nothing to do with the interaction with between Darren Wilson and Michael Brown. Is the robbery tape relevant to understanding what happened? Uh, almost certainly not, and it's. It, I think I'd have to agree that the release was pretty inexcusable. As a prosecutor, if somebody released a tape like that in a case where I was potentially investigating a police officer, I would have been very, very upset at that person because it would have seemed to me at least suggested that there was an attempt to take the jury pool. Uh, um, wow, so they, I'm surprised. I'm actually surprised. I'm going to have to debate you, and you, I, I want to hear your response. Um, it seems to me clearly relevant because it speaks to one specific, no, two specific points. Um, one, whether or not the main witness at this point, Michael Brown's friend, is credible. He didn't mention this, right? He didn't mention that they had just robbed a store. He didn't mention that they were walking away from this kind of incident. Thus, leaving that part of the story impugns his overall credibility. But second, in the oh. more important fact, by the way, and I want you to rebut both of these, by the way, Alex. The yeah, second sure. is to the state of mind of Michael Brown. If he encounters a police officer after just robbing a store, he is going to act a certain way to that police officer different than if he was a completely innocent party. So uh, I think the reason that neither of those work, and, and I think would be rejected pretty soundly by a judge, is in, in a case like this, I think we have to sort of go back to first principle. Police officers don't have a right to shoot you. I think no matter where you are in the political spectrum, I think this, that's one of the pieces that has surprised me. There has been sort of more coalescence around the idea that, like, look, we don't want police officers killing people. We don't care who they are on the, on the left, on the right. There are reasons why we don't think that's a good idea. And in the court of law, they don't have sort of a special police officer exception for force. It is a straightforward murder case. And what makes it different is that the officer, if he's ever charged with any sort of murder, manslaughter, first degree, second degree, is going to assert self-defense. That what I did was necessary. I believed that I was reasonably in fear for my life. And that's very standard law. I mean, self-defense cases have gone on for centuries. But the key to a self-defense case is not the mind of the aggressor who is now dead or the alleged aggressor who is now dead. It's the state of the mind of the police officer. So if the police officer had no idea about this burglary, and certainly he had never seen this video, he would tell the jury absolutely nothing about how scared Officer Wilson was to see that video. There's different scenarios. If Wilson somehow had got that video on his iPhone, had seen it and said, man, this guy's aggressive, and he does something that I see that's aggressive, I'm going to respond a certain way. But the key question is what Officer Wilson thinks and feels. And yeah, sees. but part of understanding because, what Officer Wilson thinks and feels is understanding the potential actions that Michael Brown might have taken towards Officer Wilson. Absolutely. So but if he just robbed the that. store, we have we have at least some evidence to believe he could have been aggressive with the officer. When you combine that kind of evidence with whatever, we don't know this yet, right, whatever kind of uh, injuries Wilson may or may not have, now you have relevant evidence. So, I, I mean, I would disagree. I think that it would certainly be true if somebody were to ask the question to the, the eyewitness who was there with him, look, did you just come from a store and rob the store? And he says, no. You absolutely could get in that video to, to impeach his credibility and demonstrate that he is not telling the truth. Um, but if, Wolf, but if, if the, the individual who is just engaged in this robbery is not displaying any signs of agitation, um, it's not going to be relevant to... But, but, but Alex, Alex, let me let me ask you this, because we will have 
I am willing to wager, because we already do, conflicting witness accounts. We have conflicting sure. witness accounts that are either going to be presented to a grand jury or eventually to a, in, in a trial, where one group of people are going to say, we saw Michael Brown standing innocently, putting his hands up on the ground, and he was shot for simply standing there. And another group of witnesses who might, who might say that Michael Brown was charging this officer. So if you have these two yeah. different accounts and then uh, a lawyer arguing, you have the different accounts, because, or, or, or at least half of these accounts exist because maybe Michael Brown was trying to evade uh, police capture because he had just committed a crime. You don't see that as relevant to backing up the no, credibility of one I group think, of witnesses? I think they certainly could get that question, that, that specific fact into evidence. They could put on the individual in the gas station to say a robbery occurred. I don't think they get the video in. Oh, you're That's distinguishing different. between knowledge of hmm. the event and the video? Oh, abs- absolutely. Interesting. Oh. I think there's absolutely a distinction between the video and the knowledge. Because I mean, you're, what you're telling in the story, I think which, what I think y'all are talking about, and why we're having a bit of a distinction, mm-hmm. is that you're sort of telling the narrative of the day. Right. It absolutely is important to get the narrative of the day before the jury. All right. There are very strict rules about how you can do that. And I think that there would be particularly a prejudicial effect to seeing this encounter in the robbery if nobody else who was really engaged in the later event had seen that video. Because it's sort of, you know, adding extra things on it. Imagine, for example, somebody gets in a domestic dispute, and Mm -hmm. they're now walking down the street, and they're really angry, and they engage police. They, you know, throw a punch at a police officer. They get hurt, and they charge the police officer with excessive force. Well, it's relevant that he's just been engaged in a domestic dispute. He's worried he's going to get arrested for right. hurting his right. spouse. But it wouldn't be very useful to have the video of that interaction. Okay, so just so our our, our, our listeners understand, and, and uh, I don't even know if you know this, Alex, but I'm a pseudo-lawyer. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you're talking about a balancing act that ultimately a judge would do would, would, would weigh, which is how relevant is the evidence against how prejudicial is the evidence towards the ultimate. I mean, right? 402 versus 403, well, I, essentially, in the rules I, I of think, evidence? Yeah, so so that's a 403 balancing. I don't think that's what ultimately would get the video out. I don't think there's any way the video could come in. I think mm. it could come in, the things we've talked about, that there had been a robbery, that Michael Brown was allegedly involved in that robbery. I think that sort of thing could come into play, right. um, just the general fact that it occurred. But the fact that it occurred. All right, let's... That video and say, hey, jury, look at this guy. He was, you know, this a bad guy. Look, look, yeah. look how big it... Well, yeah, I still think, look, look at him strong-arguing this guy. Could he have done it again 10 minutes later? I don't know. I think that's going to be a tough call. Let's move on to... Uh, I want to ask you about two other things. The witness. Um, what's his name? Dorian Johnson? Dorian Johnson yeah, was Michael Brown's friend, was with him that day. He was the one that first said Michael Brown had his arms up. Uh, the, uh, he was the one I was mentioning did not mention he was involved in the robbery. There are things coming out about him that he has priors of... of uh, Lying, lying to, the, to the, police. the police, is that right, SC? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, robbery. Had a, a warrant out, I believe. Yeah, at uh, the time he had a warrant out. Uh, he has a robbery charge, if not conviction, and uh, lying to the police about his name and his age. Finish that yogurt. I'm eating yogurt, I'm sorry. Right. I'm are these are these relevant uh, regarding Dorian Johnson and his testimony? Yeah, anytime you have a witness with a criminal record that's conviction, that conviction is not you know 10 years, 20 years, 30 years old. Um, the prosecutor will be able, to, or the defense counsel, whoever is the opposing counsel of the witness, will be able to ask questions about that and say, listen, you, you have a prior conviction for this. You have a prior conviction for this. And specifically that he's lied to police officers? That one in, in the particular? past, yeah. 
Is that relevant? Oh, absolutely, yeah. That would yeah. be a relevant question. Okay. Huh. So uh, we're running out of time. Last one. There's a huge call to have the prosecutor in, in Ferguson removed, that he has, A, a, a personal tragedy. His father was killed by an African-American in the line of duty, I believe. His father, a policeman. A yeah. policeman, right. And, yeah. and uh, B, that he has close ties to law enforcement. Are these either of these legitimate grounds to asking him to recuse himself? Are they relevant? Yeah, I think the first one definitely is not. Yeah. Um, I think personal, you know, personal tragedies happen. People do that. We presume, you know, that you live your life, and particularly at a job like that, that you're responsible. Um, I think the second one is more of an issue, depending on whether or not it affects your work and whether or not you have the credibility to investigate a group that you're close with. Prosecutors are close with police. That's right. Isn't that kind of across the board? It is. But then the question is, to what extent does that influence what you do? And are there signs that it is somehow swaying what you're doing? I wrote about this last week on Vox.com or did an interview with them, and I really think there are some problems with the way this has happened. The fact that there was no incident report written by Officer Wilson is incredibly troubling. Hmm. And it goes back to that idea that, you know... Is there no incident report, Alex, or no, or no incident report released? No. They, they, the ACLU won a lawsuit, I guess, was yesterday, and they got a one-page report written three days later. Hmm. There was not a narrative written by Officer Wilson. Hmm. Um, he, was, he did that on advice of counsel, I suspect. Um, and I think that's somewhat problematic. I think yeah. the way that they have announced they're doing the grand jury investigation, um, it gets sort of complicated. But the idea is they said, well, you know, we're just going to give it to the grand jury and let the grand jury decide. That's not how prosecutors should act. Prosecutors have to make a call. And he's got to take the heat, whether he says, I'm not going to charge him or whether yeah. he's going to charge him. Well, and not to and mention, let me, let me also lay some blame at the feet of Jay Nixon. And you don't have to weigh in on the politics of this, Alex, if you don't want. But Jay Nixon has decided, it seems like, he doesn't want to make this decision. So he hints at the idea that this federal prosecutor might have to go, but he has not made this decision yet. And so he's letting it linger. And it just feels like, I've like, stop being a coward. Make the call and make it now as opposed to weeks later, right? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, the first people say, look, don't rush to judgment. I absolutely agree. You want the facts. But once you have the facts and you've sort of clarified some of these issues and you have a reason to believe one set of witnesses versus the other, you look at some of the forensic evidence, and then you have to make a call. And I don't think it's fair just to say, hey, grand jurors, every other day I come into this grand jury and I ask you to indict. But today I'm just going to say, mm, do what you feel. Hmm. I, I think that's just abdicating the responsibility of a prosecutor. Yeah. All right, Alex Little, uh, great stuff. Again, thank you for joining us so many times. Do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, you mentioned you have an article on Vox. Do you have anything else you want to plug? No, no, just, um, you know, enjoy being on. All right, hey, thanks, we love uh, having really you, thanks. Yep. All right. All right uh, you know what I loved about that? We, we didn't really, we didn't know what he was going to say. Yeah. Um, and it's been we debatable, certain, right? I mean. The show has been debatable <laughs> in so many ways. Right. Alex's opinion is great and really, really valuable. You know what else? Um, we need to debate whether or not the ALS uh, ice bucket challenge is 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 worthy. We need to debate whether or not I'm allowed to go swimming where I want to swim. And there's still a little more to debate on Debatable. Ferguson, Missouri. When we come back on Kane and Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and S.E. Cup return. I love when I I have I come upon science that irrefutably backs up something I already suspected. 
Oh, you like validation. Yes, and especially when that validation is science. I have science today. You said science three times, which means clearly it is not. I have science. The st- let me. I'll just read you the title of this article. Study says, that's science. I don't even have to go any further. Mm-hmm. Study says Green Bay Packers have the NFL's best fans. Study says. Study or studies? Study. Oh, study singular. says, that's science. I, I, didn't, I didn't need a study to tell me that. I know that we are the best fans. But it's always, it always feels good when science, when science backs me up. The study um, was conducted by Forbes magazine. Reputable, scientific <laughs> outfit. <laughs> I'm also hung up on your invocation of we a moment ago. I'll come back to that in a moment. I already knew that we were the best fans. But we'll come back to it. Don't get hung up. Lay out your case. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're yeah. gonna challenge whether I'm actually a fan. This will be good. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the Packers are number one on the list of the NFL's best fans. Number two, Denver Broncos. Number three, New Orleans Saints. Number four, New England Patriots. That's my dad's team and my husband's team. Number five, Baltimore Ravens. What? Who's the starting running back for the Green Bay Packers? What? Oh, this year? Oh, number one fans. No, I did not say I was a number one fan. I said I am a fan. Who's the number one wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers? She said her eyes are darting around. Wide receiver, Clay Matthews? He plays linebacker. Uh, Jordy Nelson, running back, Eddie Lacy. Oh, Jordy, yeah. Listen. I I rest my case. Okay, I'm a Packer fan. I'm a Packer no, fan. No, no, I, I, I don't, I don't take that away from you. Just that you're. I, uh, look, it's this, preseason. This... I have not been following. <laughs> I have not been following yet. They've been the starters for a couple years. I have not been following. I will, I will admit that. But I am, I am 100% a Packer fan for over 10 years now. Okay, couple things. Um, Wait, can I finish this list? Yes. <laughs> you want me to finish this list because you end up being on it. I heard number seven. Number six, Indianapolis tweeted. Colts. Tied for seventh, Cowboys and Steelers. That's got to hurt. Let's just be clear. I'm on the Cowboys side of that tie. That's got to hurt. Number nine, Seattle Seahawks. Number 10, Chicago Bears. Here's what I want to know. Do you have the worst? No. Oh, that would be interesting. Who are the worst fans? Well, so let me explain to you how this criteria is judged. Um, And the research is done by Nielsen Scarborough, reported by Forbes. Um, it's based on the hometown crowd reach, social media reach based on the area's population, and three years' worth of Nielsen television ratings, stadium capacity percentage, and merchandise sales. So there's a lot that goes into it. That 100,000-seat Jerry World down in Texas sure boosts the Cowboys ranking. It's it's a really small stadium. I actually think it's less than 100,000, but yeah. No, I'm talking about the Cowboys. You're talking about the Packers. Oh yeah, the Packers are really. Yeah, I'm small, talking about that monstrosity we have down in Texas. It holds over a hundred thousand. Here, here, you know, I said this to you. I, uh, I, I, I will brag. I will boast. I will leave rationality behind when it comes to sports most of the time. But I will not suggest to you that the Dallas Cowboy fans are the best fans in the NFL. I think the Green Bay Packers fans have earned that title. I think that the fact there are waiting lists that last a lifetime to, to get, get season seats, tickets. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. is is uh, exhibit one in your evidence. I, it's the bottom line is I've been going to Cowboys games since I was you know I don't know seven eight years old. Yeah, you can sit in that stadium. It's not the same. It's we we love it's the special. Cowboys, but we're not in Green Bay. We're not crazy. Um, it's and, from- I, and I mean that endearingly crazy. Well, we're not crazy. It is a special place. Lambeau is special. It's a special feeling to be there to sit in those seats. I've I've only done it twice. So, uh, but but it's I like it. It's like Fenway. It's maybe like Wrigley is like that. Of the stadiums that I've been to and the games I've been to, it's like that. It's special. It feels historic. The we thing. I can't leave that. We're gonna have to have some other conversation some other time about how do you earn we? A friend of mine, Brian Curtis, writing for Grantland, once did this when it comes to college football. Who do you get to root for? I he, get to root for whoever I want oh, to. Oh no, he lays yes, out some very specific rules that are fascinating about That's who you ridiculous. get to root for. Sports fandom is earned, not chosen. It's largely a That's birthright. Ridiculous. How do you get to be we? You don't just get to throw around we's everywhere. Do, stop being a, a sports snob. Oh yes, I. Will and be. these teams are lucky to have any fans that are willing to call themselves fans. More debatable topics. And believe like me, where the I Green get Bay to Packers swim. are happy. She to never have hears me. the rap. They are happy to have <laughs> me. Kane and Cup. You are listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. That was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, 1,100 men went in the war. 360 men come out. The sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. That's Robert Shaw from Jaws. Quint. 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 Telling the story of the Indianapolis when it went down after delivering... The bomb, the one that would go off over Hiroshima, Japan. But on the way home, the Indianapolis went down. Eleven hundred men went into the water that day. Don't, don't do, don't do accents. Three hundred came out. The sharks took the rest. Don't do it. What did your did your wife text you earlier today? She did. What did she say? No more accents. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Speaking of your wife, women. and I don't, I don't, All I, these you know, women telling me what to do. This is exactly. We didn't even plan this segue, but this is exactly what I want to talk about. Oh, it's actually right. It I is. know. <laughs> because a couple weeks back, Will told us all that he's going to Hawaii. One let me, week. Let me rephrase that. He's going back to Hawaii. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, been, it's been quite a summer for Will. He's going back to Hawaii to do a race. What is it, 10 miles? Yes. 10 miles from one island to another stupid island with a bunch <laughs> of sharks in between. A swimming race. For what purpose? Who are you benefiting? Um, Will Kane? No charity involved. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. This just got even worse. And I have been I've been thinking about this because this is just terrifying to me. And I said to you yesterday, I can't believe your wife is letting you do this. She must be very worried for you. You said she was. She's concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, I partly because this is like my greatest fear. Ocean, open water, sharks, other marine life and aquatic stuff um, that I won't get into. This is my biggest fear. So 
I, I, I don't want you to do this. I can't imagine she's happy with you doing this, but you're doing this. And I said to you, she doesn't get to decide. And I said, I said, you know, I would never, I would never let my husband do this. And you go, oh, there's no, there's no let. I mean. Right. There's no let. What are you talking about? Right. 888-900-3393. Before we get into this, you can join us. Do you have these rules in your house? You are allowed, I mean, besides the whole, you know, cheating um, you no, know. no, no, on these issues. Yeah, on this and not, not like on strip clubs, you know. I think especially when you become parents, I imagine you talk about these things in greater detail. Um, You know, I asked you, would you be okay with your wife, for example, your wife's a photographer, um, being embedded in Iraq or Afghanistan as a photojournalist, would you be okay with that? No. Not okay. Right. Would you let her? No. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. We're peeling back the layers of the onion here. Interesting. <laughs> uh-huh. What I mean, why doesn't uh-huh. she get to by the way, let well, me I draw, think the analogies aren't let comparable. Me, let me you're yeah. right, they're not. You're right, they're not. This would be part of her job. Yours is for no good reason at all other than you want to. Gratification. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two, she would be protected by the United States Army. She would be in, I mean, ensconced in probably the safest, the safest company that you could be in. You are out there alone with sharks. No. Yes. Listen, listen. The, the embedding in Afghanistan or Iraq scenario is, thank you, Jose, is in Demically dangerous. A little Jaws music coming in there. You got to get your headphones right. Um, it's it's by its very nature, it is dangerous. What? Okay. Swimming in the ocean is not one hundred percent false. It is dangerous. No, you are you are setting the majority of the Earth as off limits to you. Three four three fourths of the planet is dangerous. I'm yes. setting terrorist havens off limits. You you know the thing about this thing that I'm doing right the swimming from one island to another sharks does the, the existence of sharks crosses my mind true one of my friends once told me said do you know how to know if you are in waters where there are sharks and the, and the advice that was given is you should taste the water what yeah you can tell if sharks are present by tasting the water how what does it taste like if it's salty Death? if it's salty there are sharks oh. <laughs> Um, exactly. What's, okay, that's the point. I'm not going to set the ocean off limits to me. Do you go in the ocean? I go in up to my feet. What, like your ankles? <laughs> no, I'll go up. I'll go up to to like my waist. But if I can't see my feet, I am out of there. No way. That's absurd. It's not absurd. You know what? I've never been bitten by a shark. <laughs> it so actually dumb. works. So dumb. It works. <laughs> Science. Science. You would you would set things like um you would say. Surfing is off limits. One hundred percent off limits. Uh, deep sea fishing is off limits because no. it's a that, that, that you might have to get out of that boat for some reason. I don't have to get out of the boat. There's a possibility. Wrong. <laughs> yes. You. Some. I've been deep sea fishing maybe uh fifty times in what? my life. You got the line. I've never had to get out of the boat. Got the line tangled in your prop. Um. There's scissors. Well, you got to get down there. This I don't have to get down anywhere. <laughs> 
I'm not somebody alone. Does. I'm not Quint. Somebody does. If everybody adopts your logic, you're not going me. to be a bobber in the middle of the ocean. What are you guys doing? Why haven't you gotten your prop untangled? I'm not going getting in, the water. in that water. The point I'm making is there's no greater danger of sharks where I'll be out in the middle of the ocean, four miles away from an island, than there is 50 yards off the beach. The danger is essentially the same. And but if the I'm, danger is there. If I'm not going to say to myself um, the absurd rule you have set, which is I'll go no deeper than my knees. Yes, right. If I'm saying right. I can swim 50 yards offshore, then I can also swim four miles offshore. I've taken on no greater risk. Um, this is a totally unnecessary endeavor. <laughs> I believe you will be, it will be safe. You will survive. I am hopeful that you, you survive this. Thank you. <laughs> I think the odds are in your favor that you will, but there is absolutely 100% a risk that you will suffer a shark bite. But a risk is not a sufficient risk. You said to me that you me. went Fly you know why? Because there's no way, there's no way me, for a shark bite to go okay. You told me <laughs> you went fly fishing in Alaska, and a bear came close to you. That risk is inherent in that endeavor. And how could you possibly have taken that risk under these under this analysis? Because I had a shotgun and bear spray. No, easy, easy. That bear, the bear is a risk shotgun, when I'm unarmed. That shotgun to that bear is like deodorant. He would just spray it under his arms and keep coming. He doesn't care about your shotgun. Um. Okay. First of all. And also the other one's Banaka. The bear spray. It's not Banaka. It's bear spray and it's really effective. And I didn't need either when I came across this bear because I learned how to anticipate what to do Me too. when confronted with a bear. punch that shark in the nose and poke at his eyes. <sighs> same, same. Your gun and there's no gun or shark spray that you will have ward off a shark attack. So I think the point of this conversation is twofold. Your analogy is bad. No. Um, to Iraq. <laughs> no, I think that's that's a real world scenario. That's a scenario in my house, right? Like there are things I wouldn't want my husband to do um, that are in the adventure sports realm. And I, there are things I might want to do or have to do um, or have the opportunity to do for my career that he wouldn't want me to do and that's part of compromising that's the second part of this debate do spouses get to say what you what is off limits well apparently one spouse does because you've you've decided what's off limits for her well i forgot um i'm also the man oh that's a whole other thing that's a whole other thing we just went in a whole other direction then i'm just just poking you. No, you're not. You. I'm just poking at no, you. No, you're not. I think, <laughs> I think you're serious. I think you're serious. <laughs> mm. Let's right. take a break. I want to um I want to continue our debatable show. Mm. Which which is super debatable. Don't know whether it's here or not. <laughs> and uh ask you, Will, if you think that my generous participation <laughs> In the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge was stupid. Which really says something about your character, which I think sets you apart from other people. That's the thing I think we should, that's, that's the what? part we should focus on. What? That you did this. Okay. It really sets you apart. You know what? <laughs> I encountered, I encountered, I'd say a dozen dudes that I wanted to nominate for this challenge who said, no, I don't want to. I did it at six months pregnant. Boom. That's coming up, Kane Cup. This is Kane and Cup. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
I just spent the commercial break trying to talk SE into watching the best, not just Western, the best movie I think of all time. Which That's crazy. It's a miniseries. It's Lonesome Dove. And I'm telling her Robert Duvall, Tommy Lee Jones, Diane Lane. I like all those so people. Good. I can't watch what I don't like westerns. Yeah, and then she says to me, um, that, that, that some that your dad yeah rec- recommended Jeremiah Johnson to no, you. No, it's my dad's favorite movie is Jeremiah. And Johnson. you rolled your eyes at Jeremiah Johnson. I cannot watch that movie about them bar in that woods. I can't do it. It's so good. <laughs> you know, by the way, you couldn't make a Jeremiah Johnson today, like. I think literally 60% of the movie has no dialogue. No, it's, <laughs> it is. Do you know Robert Redford? Robert Redford, you know, just made that that movie with the no dialogue on the boat. Oh, it's, All I've is seen, Lost. I've seen it on Amazon. I've been curious about it. Is it good? Have you seen it? Uh, I did not watch that. Oh. It is like no dialogue for three hours. But I'm telling you, the prequel was Jeremiah Johnson, where Robert, Robert Redford is out in the snowy woods not talking. <laughs> I can't watch it. It's so it's boring. It's so good. It's so boring. It's so boring. I don't know if I can do Lonesome Dove with with your, I mean, I, I don't trust you on these movies now. Lonesome Dove is the best movie of all time. Uh, women out there, this is what Will Kane just said to me. You're pregnant. You're going to be on the couch for a while. Take six <laughs> hours. Take six hours to watch Lonesome Dove. Does that sound like Will Kane understands us? Because that is not my idea of how I want to spend six hours on a couch. Mm. Watching Lonesome Dove. Tell us how you have been spending your time, you charitable, (laughs) you charitable, gold-hearted person. I'm a really good person. Do you know how I know that? Because I did the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. No, um, listen, you know, I'm not one for fads. Uh, You and I have talked about hashtag activism and how much that bothers us. But... uh, Everyone, we don't have to explain what the Ice Bucket Challenge is because it is viral. It's gone everywhere. And everyone now challenges everyone to promote giving to ALS and themselves. How do to you promote deal with themselves. multiple challenges? Oh, well. Is, I, there a, is there a rule for this? Or are you supposed to just keep doing it over and over? No, no, no. You only have to do it once. I was I've been challenged, challenged three and so times. I did it. I've been by three different people. I haven't done it yet. So if I do it once, huh. I cover all of those challenges? Interesting. You haven't done it yet. Um, well, no, you would pick you would you would pick who to respond to. So and so challenged me, so I'm doing it, and then you have to nominate three other people. And you just give the Heisman to the other two? I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess. So I was I was challenged. Here, we have the we have the clip. Here, play the play how it went. I'm at the cup. I was nominated by my friend Dante Stallworth to take the ALS challenge. I'm accepting the challenge. You should know that I consulted with my doctor as I am six months pregnant. She must not like me very much because she said it was fine. Oh, this looks awful. This is ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Oh, my God! <laughs> That's legit me, like, like shivering at the end that's legit you tossing to yourself which puts you in some unique company for media and Um, here i am (laughs) here's me here's me on me uh look say what you will and i've actually i've had this conversation with a couple people like is this stupid does this work say what you will the als association has raised 22.9 million dollars is record donations um same time period last year was 1.9 million. 
And these are donations coming from both existing donors and 450,000 new donors to the association. I do work for a number of different charities. I would love it if some of them would take this viral marketing approach Mm. and get hip to the power of social media. I don't care if it's cheesy. I don't care if it's self-promotional. If this is working, I am all for it. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, though, if it can happen again. I mean, to some extent, I'm sure it's lightning in a bottle. I'm sure other charities have tried viral campaigns. This one caught. and it, it, But I wonder if it takes the wind out of the sails of the next guy that you tries You are 100% this. right, and it's interesting. I had this conversation. I was talking to Mark Cuban about it because I wanted to challenge him, and name he'd been dropping. challenged by like— Name dropping. He'd been challenged already by 1,000 people. He didn't do it anyway. Dante Stallworth and Mark Cuban name dropped it in the last two minutes. Mark Cuban said this works one and a half times. Right. What's that mean? So, oh, so, do you know what I mean? Like, um, another charity will get half the impact half, these guys exactly. have, and then the and, next and gets every, none. Exactly. Hmm. Probably for the reason you just said. You just said that there's a phenomenon. It can happen once, and then it it gets a little diluted. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to do this exact thing. Take a good lesson. Be creative. Come up with the next new thing. Mm-hmm. I just look the traditional way of raising money. That we've been using for like a century, it needs to be re rejiggered a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And you can't argue with this kind of success. No, that's good. That's good for uh, that foundation for ALS, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's, Lou Gehrig's disease. disease I'm, yeah. I'm happy for them that it's been such a successful campaign for them. I haven't been able to do it because I live in New York City. I, what? Wh- Wait, what? What do you do? So you go to your bathtub. Just go on the street. It's ice water. Just go on the street. Just go on the sidewalk in front of your apartment and dump a bucket of water over your head. I it's not difficult. For that. I think that might be littering. Let's talk about birth control <laughs> when we come back on Cane and Cup. <laughs> You're listening to Cane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. I thought you said it was imminent. Yeah, it was, but then I just couldn't decide if he was really sponge-worthy. Sponge-worthy? Yeah, Jerry, I have to conserve these sponges. But you like this guy. Isn't that what the sponges are for? Yes, yes, before they went off the market. But, I mean, now I've got to reevaluate my whole screening process. I can't afford to waste any of them. You know you're nuts with these sponges. George is getting frustrated. <laughs> Sponge, that word is, that is cringeworthy. I don't like it in that clip. Spongeworthy is cringeworthy. Just keep, when you, when you say sponge in that context, it makes me uncomfortable. All right, let's not get into it too, 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 too rigorously. Um, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> great. That's great. Um, yeah, it was weird. You and I were talking yesterday about, about, birth control about the birth control pill and how it's sort of like the defining contraceptive of our generation. Um, apparently Elaine in the nineties was addicted to the today's sponge, which I can't even contemplate. I can't even envision. I can't even contemplate. I don't even want to know the science of what, what's happening there. Um, I think before my generation, it was apparently the sponge, the diaphragm maybe was a, was a popular thing. 
Yeah, we talked about the fact that uh, our roughly generation, I think probably even a little older than us, is the first to really go through the birth control experiment. In other words, what is it like? What's the lasting effect to have your body on a hormonal control medicine for an extended period of time? Yeah. This is the first generation to really kind of ask that question. I think so. And it was just, yeah, it was commonplace in my generation. The GOP... Um, I won't say the GOP writ large, but several Republicans are experimenting with a new policy push. Uh, Cory Gardner in Colorado is is one right now running for Senate in Colorado, uh, who is pushing an initiative to make birth control, the birth control pill available over the counter. He is not the first to do this. A couple of others have tried. Bobby Jindal in Louisiana, the governor there, wrote an op-ed about that a year or two ago, suggesting uh, the benefits of doing that. And it's causing some controversy. The controversy on the right is from social conservatives who think that this sort of celebrates birth control. The controversy on the left is really good. Because Democrats are very confused by this. Huh? <laughs> no, what? no, no. What? You don't like birth control. What? Yeah, Democrats are really confused by this, which is my only, the only evidence I need to know this is working because Democrats are confused. In Colorado, the only two attacks against Cory Gardner that Democrats could really summon was one, this is inconsistent with his other opinions. Not true, but okay. Um, two... That, uh. Did you forget? Did you yeah. just do Rick Perry? What's the other one? <laughs> oh my gosh. That just happened in no, real time. The other, <laughs> the other attack. What is the other attack? Oh, you did! I just had it. Department of Energy. <laughs> e- education? <laughs> I have no idea what arguing when I can't um, help you. I'm like Ron Paul over here with my old man hand. There's five. Oh, there's, <laughs> five, not three. <laughs> that Cory Gardner's position is inconsistent. Oh, I got it. Sorry. And that um, this is just a pander to women. Oh, right. And that's particularly comical <laughs> because that's all Democrats do is pander to women. Yeah. That is all they do. Literally, well, that is the platform, pander to women. But here's the thing, right? Now, you and I have had this conversation, and this is where it has to go. We have to... <laughs> It's. I have said this is genius because while there is a constituency on the right, and I know you have some numbers that are fascinating, us who is who is who are morally opposed to birth control or have a significant opposition to the concept of birth control, the vast majority do not. Right. So when the Democrats say you don't want to have women to have birth control, you don't like birth control. Give us the numbers. What, so yeah, it's fascinating because what you're seeing, and I was actually, I was watching Morning Joe on this, and and Mika was talking about it, and she said this is this is amazing because the GOP has always opposed birth control. False. Like not even close to being accurate. If you took if you took accuracy at its loosest definition, there's virtually nothing true about that. Right. Um, in it, you know, I think what she's trying to say is that the GOP has opposed publicly subsidizing birth control, forcing other people to pay for your birth, forcing control. people who morally oppose birth control to pay for it. Right. The GOP does not oppose birth control. And I did find fascinating numbers in a 2012 Gallup poll. 
it found that 87, 87% of Republicans found birth control to be morally acceptable. 87%. Now, just to put that in perspective, the number of Republicans who find the death penalty morally acceptable, the death penalty, by the way, being I mean, traditionally a conservative pillar. All right, you said it's in the platform, in the Republican platform. Death penalty, 76% find it morally acceptable. So there is more debate within the Republican Party over whether the death penalty is okay than there is over birth control. So the genius of the Bobby Jindal and Cory Gardner approach to me is that it exposes exactly what it is that uh, it's, it exposes the left's confusion and reveals the right's actual objection, which is, no, Sandra Fluke, we don't care if you have birth control. We want you to have birth control. We just don't think you have a right to it. And by right, therefore, you get a to force someone else to pay for it for you. And by the way, because people who believe in the Constitution or believe in in any sort of uh, constitutional republic, the 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 center, the moral center pole on that kind of outlook is protection of minorities. I know that's going to strike some uneducated people as huh, because of the whole <laughs> race huh. But the point of a constitution is to protect 49% from 51%. In this case, it's whatever percentage of people you just cited, Desi, 13%, have some oblig- uh, objection uh-huh. to birth control. They shouldn't be forced to pay for yours. Correct. And it's not just their moral opposition. It's anybody that's like, I don't think I should pay for I- anything of yours, regardless of my morale. Right. M- Whether moral it's your abortion it. or your war. Right. Right. So, uh, so it exposes all that, and so I've said it's genius. It accomplishes a lot. Yeah. That's that's what I think. What I think you're getting at. Uh, it accomplishes the removal of this as an issue on the Sandra Fluke Hobby Lobby. No one who objects is going to be forced to pay for this. And it also it, yes, but it also tickles my libertarian uh, fancy of. Uh, you know, drug legalization. Well, we can start with ones that actually have therapeutic, useful purposes. Why shouldn't birth control? Well, it's already legal. But, 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 but well, it's legal, but prescriptions essentially put legal drugs under a regulatory environment that you have to ask, is it necessary to exist there? I mean, buying birth control over the counter makes it much more freely accessible. Yes, for sure. Oh, for sure. That's, that's the argument. So, but so, number one, it accomplishes... Uh, not a political goal, a legitimate goal of of uh, not forcing companies like Hobby Lobby or individual citizens like Will Kane or SC Cup from having to subsidize something they morally oppose. Right. That's one. And that's a good thing. Um, two, politically, I think it's uh, it's an ingenious way of combating the war on women because it's uh, who who on the feminist side or on the left or on side of women's rights, quote unquote, could argue that making birth control more accessible to more women is a war on women. So it it sort of slays that dragon. And three, what I love most about it and, and what I like about the way in which Cory Gardner is marketing this, it's not even about women's rights. The way conservatives are, are talking about this, it's about making your life work better. And across the board, this should be our platform on virtually every policy that we push. How does it make your life easier? And as a woman who had been on the pill before (laughs) trying to get pregnant for quite some time, I can tell you going to the doctor, having to go to the doctor to get 
my prescription renewed every six months or however long was a pain. Right. It was a pain. This is a visceral example for many, many women out there of making your life easier. So I have said it's genius. However, right? There is a however in this debate. There is a but there in is. this debate. And I know many in our audience have brought those up to both of us on Twitter. Um, and we'd love for you to join us on the phones at 888-900-3393. Making birth control over the counter. Smart or dumb? Or dangerous, right. <laughs> like John Stewart said. Good thing, bad thing. <laughs> yeah, let's continue after the let's break. Let's do that. Because there is a but. Coming back, Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cop on the Blaze Radio Network. We're talking about birth control, obviously. Obviously. Because it's right... For comedy, it's not. Um, No, it's because the GOP in some isolated cases seems to be on a push uh, for a new new public policy, which is to make birth control available over the counter. And this is very confusing to the left. Uh, There's been a little pushback on the right. Uh, The media really doesn't even know how to cover this because they were so used to the, the war on women narrative. Now it's, wait, what? What? This doesn't make any sense. Again, clicking forward on the storylines, just get ready for it because there's going to be a lot of confusion as to where the GOP has been on this. And I want you to repeat this statistic every time you hear the GOP has always opposed birth control. Wrong. 87% find it morally acceptable. Yeah, but for for this story to click ahead, as you like to say, um, there's going to have to be a greater embrace of it. Uh, by Republicans, it's not by just more gonna, Republicans, yeah. right? It can't just be Cory Gardner. Um, no, but can't you see Rand Paul doing something like this? Absolutely, with Rand Paul, he's a doctor. Um, well, it's just it's it, it's the kind of and thing a, libertarian. a libertarianish person would argue. But the question is this, right? You're saying, click ahead. This will continue to cause confusion if the GOP embraces it. If they don't, at a greater degree, I see it'll just be dismissed. I've made this argument on the sets of television cable networks during the war on women debates and it's just dismissed like that's a quirky thing huh let's move back to the war on women thing but if the gop embraces it whole cloth i mean really goes in whole hog whole cloth all that stuff um <laughs> then <clears throat> then it becomes really confusing and unavoidable for the left but the question is should the gop and i think you and i when we debated this yesterday you you brought up i mean I, while i've said it's genius i, I it's got some real traps some real quicksand, uh, you know, that you can step into and saying, yeah, we need to make this part of the national platform, making birth control over the counter. Yeah, and those traps are not just political. Um, I, in coming across this and doing some research on it, talked to some OBGYNs about, um, you know, just the, the sort of the medical side of this. Is that really a good idea? And I only know what the average woman knows about birth control, which is that it's hormones, it tricks your body into thinking you're pregnant for 21 days a month. Um, I have pretty serious conversations with my doctor on a regular basis when I was on the pill about whether I have a history of uh, stroke, of heart disease, um, blood clots, 
lots of risks involved in taking the pill. So I talked to some doctors and honestly, the the opinion is is pretty clear on this. OBGYNs want to see you before you take the pill and while you are on the pill. They do not think, while, while all of them agreed that a more access to birth control was a good thing, they did not think it should come at the expense of the health of a woman. And for myriad reasons that they laid out, they suggested making birth control over the counter, not a good idea. Now, for the reasons that I just suggested, they want to make sure you're aware of your family's history of stroke, heart disease, blood clots. They also want you to know that it can contribute to depression. They want to know if you have a history of depression. Um, They also made an argument, which is sort of tangential, but they say that most women do not have a primary care doctor. They only have an OBGYN. And for many women, they only see their OBGYN to get their prescription for birth control filled. And when they do that, that's when they get their regular pap smear and their other things sort of screened. They get screened for ovarian cancer. Younger women, I think older women go in for mammograms regularly, but younger women, most younger women apparently only go in to get their birth control refilled. Mm -hmm. And so doctors want to use that as an opportunity to screen for other things. Now, that's not a reason not to make birth control available over the counter. But if that's the case, then we need to seriously consider how to keep encouraging women who want to go on birth control to see their doctors regularly if they get it over the counter. I think that's important. Yeah. Look, um, I I acknowledge birth control is a serious drug, one that has massive impact on hormones. And I think it is a hormone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think the fact that, as we said earlier, this is the first generation we're looking, we're looking at one and a half generations into this experiment. Um, there's a lot we don't know about the long-term impacts of birth control. Um, so all of a sudden arguing that it should be sold over the counter seems a little premature. Hasty. Hasty, yeah. However, um, it's not as though, and I, I could be wrong, okay? I'm not going to suggest, I know when I'm on solid ground and when I'm not. So this is, I'm, I'm not on solid ground here. But it doesn't appear to me that doctors are very reluctant to prescribe birth control. It doesn't seem to be a drug that is very tightly controlled, although it requires a prescription. It is one that seems to be, and I'm using a word like seems and appear, with full acknowledgement of the limits of my knowledge here, pretty readily handed out. So if that's the case, what's the point? Mm. Might as well be able to have it more accessible over the counter. But if it's true, as you point out, that women are thoroughly screened for all of these potential problems you just laid out, I don't know. Yeah, I think your sense of things is probably right. I also don't know, but I, I know I know more women on the pill than not. And uh, it, it's not only readily prescribed, it's, it's prescribed for situations that don't even involve um, avoiding an unwanted pregnancy. It's prescribed for myriad, myriad things. It's prescribed for acne, to combat acne. It's prescribed um, for women with heavy periods. I mean, lots, lots of different reasons. But what I think, getting back to the political side of this, I want what I want the GOP to avoid if they take up this mantra, and I think it's a really, really smart policy to push. Uh, once again, hashtag make life work. Make life work. Um, I think it's really smart. I want the GOP to avoid getting into some kind of medical conversation. Anytime we try to you look like doctors, with doctors right? holy moly, 
do we sound bad, especially when it comes to women's issues. So what we don't want to do is is attack doctors or tell doctors that they're wrong. So I think what we should say is, look, doctors are right to want to see women before they, they go on birth control. Right. And nothing is prohibiting them from doing that. There are plenty of drugs. There are vitamins available at your drugstore over the counter that say on the bottle, please see your doctor before taking. Right. Yeah, that look, that that can that can solve that problem. There are other drugs. You're exactly right. That have severe uh, health risks, health health impact that are sold over the counter. Joanna Rivera on Twitter says it should not be sold over the counter. Mm. It can cause blood clots for women yes. who smoke, and this is a hormone that you're taking by. Mouth. Yes, she's right. That's that's my point. To be this cavalier, especially if you're a guy, right? Corey Gardner is out. Let's just make it. What's the big deal? There are some risks in that attitude politically. You think those risks are greater than or greater or um more manageable than snorkeling? Ugh. I mean, Essie won't even snorkel. I did I snorkeled once in St. Thomas. Much less scuba. I well, oh, scuba, that's ridiculous. You're not are for you scuba. insane? I don't have a death. You're not wish. for scuba? You're not for scuba, Ruben? <laughs> <laughs> um Who's for I, scuba? You're not for scuba, Ruben. I snorkeled once. It was terrifying. I came face to face with a barracuda. Yeah, I'm just saying you have, you know, your- Barracudas can eat people. Your principle of not going further than knee deep has taken a lot of life out of your life. Oh, no. This was, I mean, this was a moment for me where I tried to overcome my serious fear. And um, because it's important to me, I don't want to have these death-gripping fears. Hey, listen, in all the talk about scuba and snorkeling and, um, and negotiating control. with terrorists and Al-Qaeda and ISIS, <laughs> let's not forget about communists and fascists. Oh. We have a next guest coming up that says, remember those guys? Oh. On Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. To Kane and Cup. Welcome back. Today is um, Saturday, August 23rd, which is my half birthday. What? <laughs> what? What does that mean? It means that today. Six months from your birthday? Is that yeah, what I'm 35 and a half. Vomit. Is that vomit? Don't your kids say that? I'm four and a half. Well, it, no, <laughs> and they're six, so I think I don't even yes. vomit. I'm 35 and a half. But uh, on another note, it's weird that August is six months from February. I don't know why. That's just weird. Okay, we can debate that another time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for the time being, August 23rd is also Black Ribbon Day. And I, I got to admit, I'll be honest, I did not know what that meant. Uh, Will, do you know what that is? I don't. Okay. It uh, basically commemorates the victims of communism and fascism. And the day marks the 75th anniversary 
since the infamous pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany um, that sort of led to led to World War II. With us today, we have uh, a guest, Marion Smith, who is the executive director of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Uh, Marion, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about Black Ribbon Day and, and what, um, what we should be thinking about today. Right. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, Black Ribbon Day, and just incidentally, this morning, with a very small number of ambassadors and Representative uh, Shimkus of Illinois, uh, we celebrated in the U.S. Capitol in the little freedom uh, foyer there for the very first time officially, Black Ribbon Day. Hmm. And we did it just as you said. This is the 75th anniversary of the pact between Hitler and Stalin, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, uh, in which, in 1939, uh, Hitler and Stalin said that they were going to divide Europe. They had a non-aggression pact with each other, and it essentially meant that Hitler could uh, feel free to invade Western Europe without having to worry about his, um, his, uh, you know, uh, Eastern, Eastern flank. flank. Yeah. And um, of course, uh, we know this because a few days later, after signing the pact, Hitler's armies invaded Poland and then swiftly turned uh, west. Um, and so, for the people of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, which historian Timothy Snyder calls the Bloodlands, uh, this pact symbolizes an alliance between two totalitarian regimes, mm-hmm. uh, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, two totalitarian ideologies, communism and fascism, uh, which then would dominate um, you know, that part of the world uh, for decades. Because after Nazi Germany was defeated in World War II, of course, uh, the Soviet Union lived on. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the 1980s, um, refugees from the Baltic states, from Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, other uh, Central and Eastern European countries, what we called the captive nations at that time, what Reagan and uh, other presidents since Eisenhower had called the the captive nations, uh, they began organizing protests on August 23rd. Mm-hmm. throughout the United States and Canada and Western Europe. And they did it uh, to counter what an awful lot of American and Western intellectuals were saying about the Soviet Union, saying that it was reforming, it was a pretty nice system, and we can continue to live with this. And by the way, the Soviet Union is, in, is inevitable that it's going to conquer and, um, and at least remain in Europe, uh, and, and we can't defeat it, so let's live with it. And these refugees were saying, no, no, um, it's a totalitarian system. Uh, it's killed millions, just like Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. and it needs to be not lived with, but uh, ended. And, uh, of course, this, uh, some of these protests led in the Baltic states to the famous Baltic Way, and that was a protest in which uh, thousands and thousands of Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians joined hand-in-hand, covering uh, over, I think, 250 miles, linking uh, various parts of their countries in, in, and they began singing folk songs and all of this. Yeah. It's also called the Singing Revolution. Just a powerful testament of, of the human spirit overcoming totalitarianism. And uh, so after the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, Europe was, was free, these countries officially commemorated Black Ribbon Day, August 23rd, uh, as a way of remembering the practical and philosophical similarities yeah. between Nazism and the Soviet Union. And now, and now and, you guys are trying to get, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the House of Representatives have already passed a resolution which designated this as Black Ribbon Day, and you're hoping now 
This goes to the Senate. Is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, so, so not only these uh, countries of Central Eastern Europe, but the EU, mm-hmm. Canada, have all passed uh, an official commemorative day, August 23rd. Um, uh, and we are hoping that this uh, same resolution or something similar passes the, uh, the Senate, and this also is true for the United States. Uh, it's fitting, of course. We were leader of the free world, and it's, uh, it's very odd that we went fighting a decades-long Cold War. Uh, tens of thousands of American lives uh, spent uh, in, 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 in that goal to confront and roll back the Soviet Union, and then in 89, we largely uh, forgot about it. Mm-hmm. We forgot why we fought, and we forgot that communism lived on elsewhere, especially in Asia. Hey, Mary, and this is Will. Essie and I were, uh, were talking about you yesterday. We were talking about having you on, and we were— um, uh, communism and, and, and fascism. We were talking about, you know, it's interesting that those two you have grouped together because I think that history has separated the two largely uh, because— Eventually, the Soviets and the Nazis found themselves on opposite sides of that war, and I think your historical knowledge is fascinating. Remind me why it is, two years later, that Hitler broke that non-aggression treaty. What, why is it he decided to invade the Soviet Union? Right. Well, dictators have a habit of not keeping their word, <laughs> um, and that's because they're interested in power, not justice. So, you know, And you just uh, thought he could pull it off? Right. Keeping promises would kind of fall into the justice category, but... Uh, Hitler and Stalin, I mean, broke all sorts of uh, arrangements and uh, treaties and lied um, as just part of their policy um, to achieve uh, more power. So there are all sorts of, you know, tactical, strategic, and um, other considerations that that led Hitler Mm. to do that. But you're exactly right. One of the results was that Stalin and the Soviet Union were were then viewed in the United States as allies. Stalin, just, just another... You know, old Uncle Joe is what he was called right. uh, around the time. Good old Uncle Joe just helping us defeat Hitler. And so, and of course, the Soviet Union lived on. So in mm-hmm. geostrategic terms, the United States had to deal with them. And by the way, within a few years, they, they had gobbled up an awful lot of territory. So they, they were the other the other major power on, on the international scene. Well, and Marion, so with all the focus today on foreign policy-wise on... Islamic extremism, domestically on socialism. Why is it important that we still remember that communism and fascism um, maybe still pose a threat to, to today today's you know global economics and, and geopolitics? Right. Well, ideas have consequences. And the linked ideas of fascism and communism is, of course, what we emphasize and highlight on Black Ribbon Day. Uh, but ideas have consequences. Uh, the countries that we just talked about in Central Eastern Europe, they, most of them largely came to terms. They had a moral reckoning with their communist past and therefore have had brighter futures. If you look at what's going on in Russia and Ukraine today, uh, there was a bit of a continuity uh, from the old Soviet system in, into to Russia uh, and Belarus and uh, some of the stands in Central Asia and, and Ukraine. And what we saw earlier this year with some of the Ukrainian protesters in Western Europe, uh, sorry, in Western Ukraine, they were going around tearing down existing statues of Lenin and tearing off uh, Soviet stars, uh, you know, that were still on buildings uh, as a way of attempting to bury the toxic legacy of communism. And in their minds, of course, this was directly linked with uh, the attempts of Vladimir Putin to keep Ukraine. Uh, within the Russian sphere of influence and dependent on, on Moscow. So the symbolism there is, of course, evident. And if, if you speak to some of the 
Ukrainian uh, freedom fighters. Uh, today, uh, we gave our, our uh, Truman Reagan Medal of Freedom to uh, Miroslav Marinovich in June, and he was, you know, back in the Soviet days, held in a gulag. And uh, in the last 20 years or so, he's been trying to build up civil society in in uh, in Ukraine, and now they're trying to defend their country from. Uh, from you know the Russian invasion that, that is ongoing. Yeah. Marion, you say ideas have consequences. Who would you suggest on the world stage right now most embodies the uh, the actualization of of those ideas? Is, is is Russia the manifestation of these ideas today? Well, uh, there are elements uh, almost everywhere um, in almost every country. What's of course dangerous is when they can capture you know power. Uh, once their hands are on the levers of power, then their ideas uh, are able to be implemented. And where would that be? Um, uh, who, who do you think is number one on that well, list? Well, I think it's I think it's very well. Obviously, there are five existing communist countries: China, Laos, uh, North Korea, Vietnam, uh, Cuba, and they represent roughly 20% of the world's population, 1.5 million, uh, 1.5 billion people. Yeah, wow. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, in a very direct sense. They are the manifestation of, of communism still. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at Russia, you know, Vladimir Putin in the last uh, 10, 15 years has been squashing all sorts of political parties. Meanwhile, the Communist Party in, in Russia has doubled in size in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's very interesting how Putin, who I don't believe is an ideologue himself, has uh, manipulated both fascist and communist elements uh, within Russia and within Europe um, to, you know, increase his, his stranglehold and power, which mm-hmm. is what he's interested in. Well, Marion, listen, we'll be, we'll be following the progress of this legislation in the Senate, and um, we want to thank you for coming on and bringing our attention to this day and your organization. Thanks for checking in with us. Yep. Thank you. Well, that's, I, it's really, it's interesting history, I mean, and... 20% of the world's population. That's yeah, still communist. I, we don't talk about communism a lot. We certainly don't talk about fascism Only a lot. as an internal threat, not really as an external geopolitical threat. Yeah, or, or a theore- you know, theoretical. We talked right. about Marx a little bit when <laughs> Obama got elected. The point is we talk about it in terms of ideas. We don't ter- talk about it in terms of um, That's right, external like, existential threats. Right, like the failure of socialism to turn into communism. We talk, We talk theory. We don't. Right. Don't talk practical. All right. When we come back. Well, I don't have a theory. I have science. I have science. Science telling me why you will Kane look like your late dog. (laughs) That's coming up on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. And cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You got a theory? I don't have a theory. I have I have science. A lot of science you're invoking today. Um, there was a study out of Japan showing why, in fact, it is true that pet owners end up looking like their pets. Um, in fact, fat owners have fat dogs like 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 that that's a tr- that's a truism 
Um, when shown a photo lineup of random people and random dogs, people are able to match the pets with their owners at a rate greater than chance because people end up looking like their pets. Do people end up looking like their pets or do people pick pets that look like them? People pick pets that look like them. Ah. So there's, there is a lot of ego involved here. Yeah. In the kind of pet you pick and the features that you like about yourself both physical and and sort of totally um, by it in my singular anecdotal experience. You you see mirrored in your pet, and the way you take care of yourself is the way you take care of your pet. So if you're real fit, you want an active dog because that's a reflection of how fit you are. Mm. If you're a little heavier. You don't mind letting your dog go a little bit, right? You'll say, <laughs> well, well, I'm going to sit on the couch. I'm not going to hold you to any does higher that mean standard. They, that mean they let their dogs get fat like they don't exercise them and feed them kibbles and bits? Or, which, by the way, is the Burger King of dog food. Mm-hmm. Um, or they buy a fat dog. What's a fat dog look like? So what, I, I think what, what it's both. Be? I think it's both in, in breed choice and, and also in the way you care for your dog hmm. is sort of a mere reflection of how you envision yourself. So if you you see yourself as a good-looking, attractive person, you want a good-looking, attractive dog. Um, but, I mean, I mean, the science is uncanny at how, like, frequent good. this is, how the match is, um, is so right huh. most of the time. So what was your dog? What dog? And I'm sorry, may he rest. Yeah. What was your dog? Rest in peace. Leon uh, was a do- a Doberman. A Doberman. And so, I would like to think. I don't. I don't see you as a Doberman. <laughs> yes, of course. No, I see you as like a yellow lab. No, the, all well, American. Well, I'll give you this. The the uh, this is where the Doberman certainly fits me better than than the the, the yellow lab is the you know skinny legs. Oh. <laughs> That is true. Dobermans do like to wear shorts and show off their skinny legs. <laughs> now they're cut, right? Yeah. Oh, that's you. <laughs> cut. Oh, and and scary. And scary. I'm scary. No, you're not. I'm scary. <laughs> I have point, pointy ears. Jose, do you have a dog? No dog. No. What dog would you pick? Uh... I kind of like Rottweiler. Oh, that fits. I like it. Uh, I The only dog I ever owned as a child was a Shih Tzu. Fits. Just the first word alone. Yes, I'm small and annoying. <laughs> we'll see Good you next Saturday today. on Cane and Cup. Have fun. Share it. Share Cane and Cup. Spread it around. You're listening to Cane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.